Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week, we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening, and let's get to it. I'm so excited to have on today Rabbi Simon Jacobson, who is a prolific author, the author of the book, Toward a Meaningful Life which was a compilation of the lessons that he learned from his many years transcribing the lectures of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, um, and then has started a Meaningful Life Center. He's an author, a speaker, writer, and all-around personality who is focused on creating a world that is full of more harmony, more peace, and more meaning. So with no further ado, Rabbi Simon Jacobson. Tell me a little bit, if you could, about the, the big principles that if a person is looking to build a more meaningful life, what would they, where would they start and what do they try to do? Okay. Um, I'll, I'll talk about a few key basic points. Let, let's start with this. In, in psychology today, even though there are many detractors from Freud and uh, many different schools of thought, but still Freud is the person to disagree with. An essential model is and I like to call it the, we'll call it the, the, Dar, the Darwinian Freudian model, where a human being has evolved from a beast. In Freud's language, it's the id, the id that drives a person, which is really a un, undisciplined pleasure principle or sexual nature of a human being. And it's me, me, me. And then you have an ego and a superego that monitor and, uh, and regulate people's behavior. So we have some type of moral structure where we don't just kill each other. Um, a Torah view is, is very, very different. The Torah begins and says the human being was created in the divine image. That's who you essentially are. You are a divine entity. You're a sacred person. You're not just an animal. That is a disciplined animal. You are fundamentally said, And you may have wandered away from your divine calling and got distracted by either materialism or power or money or other temptations. And the goal is to what we call tshuva, means to return, not to create, to reconnect and revisit and reclaim your divine uh, personality. So the algorithm would be how to real, is, is number one, is to assess who you, where you stand today, what you should look like, as opposed to what you do look like, and find a way to reconnect. One of the should look likes is, I think for many, myself included, very problematic because to a certain extent, we don't know, you know, the extent to which our, our greatness could could take us. And how do you structure, I guess, for yourself or for clients that you work with, how do you structure that image of what I could be? Excellent question. Uh, I'll use an example from art or music or for that matter, tennis. If you go to a tennis coach, tennis lessons, and they'll look at your moves and how you use your, they'll say, you know what, you're not using your uh, moves the right way. Here's how you serve. Here's how you lobby. Here's how you, how you I'm sorry, how you volley. Here's how you um, uh, defend. Here's offense and so on. So the first thing is to teach a person what it is to be a healthy, what is the healthy template of a life. And obviously apply it to that person individual. Like, you know, what is healthy love? Some people, where do, where do we learn about love? Usually in our, in our homes. So if our parents did not have a healthy relationship, that becomes our template. And we think that's what it's like. You know, I know people have told me, it's all right to, to, to yell and scream. How do you know it's all right? My father did that. I said, that doesn't make it all right. That means that he was also not doing it right. So it's important to give people a standard. It's like, so if you teach people music 
or art or, or, or as I said, art, uh, some sports. You have to teach them what's the healthy way. Here's how you use an instrument. And you even let them hear the masters, the great masters. Now, they may never reach that, but they then have a backdrop by which you ever see a doctor take an x-ray from uh, x-ray of your lungs. And then they juxtapose your x-ray with healthy lungs. And they say, you see, here's what a healthy lung looks like. And here's a block, God forbid, or, or growth. So you need to have the healthy version before you, and then you juxtapose where we are. So it's really teaching people what does a healthy love look like? What is a healthy relationship? How do you disagree in a healthy way? And, and, and you and begin to identify how people are doing things in the wrong way. Like, you know, that you're, you're not responding correctly when someone insults you. There are better, more mature ways to respond. And I think item by item, what you're doing is taking so-called the backdrop of what it's supposed to look like and then showing a person, look, let's compare where you are. I have a book called The Spiritual Guide to Counting the Omer. I take the 49 days of chesed, shabbat chesed, love within love, discipline within love, and literally do that. Like map out the emotional spectrum of a human being. How do you deal with, for example, when you're very loving, how do you know? Maybe you're loving too much. Maybe you don't know when to stop. Maybe you're spoiling your children or you're, or you're killing someone with your love. Some people are very withholding. Maybe they're not giving enough. Finding the balance between giving and restraint. And the same thing, balance between determination, let's say, and humility. And I think when you give people uh, specifics and say, what do you think a healthy, here's a scenario, tell me what's the healthy approach to it. So you easily can identify with a few questions of that. I mean, with a few pointed questions, you can really identify where people are in, 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 in contrast to where they could be. And then you really help them get from here to there. So that's, a, that's phenomenal. And then on the, I guess you can say on the, on the individual or on the client side, and one of, it's funny that you mentioned this because this is one of the major factors that made me want to launch this podcast and actually speak to people as opposed to get the information that they um, that, they, that they've written or they've spoken about, because I think especially in the world today with social media, there's this very easy ability to sort of put up a, um, you know, like I guess you could say either a mask or some kind of a perception that everything's fine over here. And the, the challenge of the question is, how do you, if you're looking for guidance, how do you try to figure out who to who to look at, who to talk to, because as you mentioned, with love and with arguments, your rabbi's not going to yell at his wife or your mentor's not going to yell at his wife in front of you, hopefully, right? But he might do it behind closed doors or you're doing it behind closed doors, you're not doing it in front of him. So for the individual, how do we find, also, if we don't even know what we're looking for in a lot of ways, how do we find those kinds of mentors? All your questions are right on target and excellent. Exactly we, just, we just met each other just for anybody watching. I'm not, uh, I didn't get the questions in advance. No, no, it's, it's, I commend you because it's, you asked right on target. As a matter of fact, uh, anticipating what you wrote, I, I deal with this all the time. Obviously, it's one of the most obvious questions. How do you find a healthy mentor? Because a lot of people will even tell you about their nightmare stories where they trusted someone and they ended up betraying them, where they ended up giving them terrible advice. Um, I actually wrote an article called How Do You Find a True Rabbi? And I'll just share with you, which by me, a rabbi is a soul doctor. He's not an administrator. He's not a fundraiser. He's not a uh, charismatic uh, schmoozer. He's a soldier. He understands the soul. He knows how to get. So how do you identify a mentor? So I would really say the following. It's not that difficult if you really know the criteria. What makes a rabbi a rabbi? I'm just using rabbi as an example. This can be applied to any mentor. That Number one is, so everyone will say, of course, knowledge. He knows. He knows his stuff. He's like, he's graduated. He has, he knows, he knows information. 
Number two, he has ordination, what we call smicha. He was ordained. Like a doctor has been now given a degree, you are officially a PhD. Number three is called shimush. He has, um, he has uh, apprenticeship. He has residency in the in medical world. In other words, he's worked under another person. But there's one more element that is never mentioned or rarely mentioned, and that is he has Yerushamayim, which means he is, uh, he's humble. He's humble in face of God. And I think that's the key, humility. So I give an example. A lot of people I meet that began their journey, they don't even know what a rabbi is. They don't even know what Judaism is. They don't even know what a mentor is. And they always say they go to one synagogue, and the rabbi tells them, that rabbi across the street, he's horrible. I go to that rabbi, he tells me this one's horrible. How do I figure it out? And I'm not an expert. I want to believe them all. But, but you know, so I said, very simple. If you hear a rabbi say something that doesn't sound so right to you, so in a very humble way, go over to him and say, you know, I'd like to know where did you get this idea from? So I told, I say, there'll be one rabbi who will look at you or even say and insult you condescendingly, who are you to ask me? I'm the authority. I'm the rabbi. I'm the expert. Another guy will tell you, I didn't take it from anywhere. It's uh, just it's my own thought. And the real rabbi, the one will say humbly, will tell you, here are my sources. Here's how I interpreted them. He will allow you to, he first will respect your question, will not dismiss you, but will also show you that he's grounded somewhere. He's not just coming up with ideas. I say that is the healthy approach. In other words, it's basically a humility, an integrity, you don't always see it, obviously. You know, you can be with someone and not know. But I think if you look closely and you see that the rabbi allows you to, to challenge him and allows you to challenge the question in a way, that usually is a sign that he's secure and he's confident and he wants to empower you instead of disempowering you. That's, that's some of the ways that I would use. Obviously, there's more details to this. But the, so a mentor is really a humble servant who not, does not think they're great. They know that they are, like a good doctor will tell you, I do not heal, God heals. I facilitate. I help get rid of the blocks that will allow the healing process to take hold. These are what the great doctors say. And someone that's arrogant is usually not going to be a great mentor. So that's such a profound concept that, again, if you flip it the other direction, and if a person wants to develop for themselves you want to call it humility, you want to call it your Shemayim, in terms of the, is it inborn? And, and just to, to clarify it very, very concretely, I guess, um, that when we put so much of our ego in how well we do about something, I remember hearing Oprah say that after every interview, no matter if she interviewed a president or, or an axe murderer, they would always turn to her at the end and say, how did I do? So we have this need, I guess you can say, to, to, for, I guess you could say, social pressure or for God to feel that we're good, etc. So how does a person, I guess, divorce themselves from, from that ego-based need and start to cultivate a feeling of humility or your Shemayim? I think it comes down to, you know, a, a word I use a lot is insecurity. I think we live in a very insecure world, and we try to compensate it sometimes with our arrogance and with our power or control. And um, you're really asking a question, how do you become a humble person when you're not? Uh, to me, it really comes down to recognizing that you are not self-made, recognizing that you are blessed and life was given to you, and that you're on a mission here. You were sent to this world on a mission. To me, that would be like the first axiom. When you look at the Torah, going back to Solomon the divine image, the bottom line is there's a God that put us here. 
you know, so some people don't like the word God. I don't use the word God. I say, but you do not put yourself here. You're on a mission. And when you're on a mission, you means there's a accountability and a responsibility to live up to that mission. It's not all about you. You're here to serve. And I think this is not even, by the way, a Jewish concept. I think anyone that's really a healthy leader thinks that way. Look, what's the greatest compliment stated about Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses? That it was the honor of. He was the greatest, most humble man that worked on earth. Not that he's the smartest, not even that he was the, the holiest, not that he was godly, that he was the humblest. Humility is, allows you to be a channel for higher truths to other people. When you don't have humility, it's all about you. And you may be brilliant, but it's still you. And if it's you, you know what? Why can't I disagree with you? But if it's humility, then you're really channeling other people. I'm sorry, you're channeling something higher than yourself. And that, I think, is the key. And I'll just give you an example that I use a lot recently um, that I found tremendous point. You know, when you ask people, like, who's the greatest Western philosopher? Okay, Aristotle. The greatest English uh, literary writer, author, Shakespeare. A, Mozart, a musician, Mozart, Bach, Beethoven, whoever. And you go through the list. And then you ask people this question. So it's a very, really an unnerving question. You say, did Aristotle have any children? Did, uh, did uh, Shakespeare have children, grandchildren? Most people say, I have no clue. You Google it, you can't even figure it out. I looked. So I said, so what, one second, if they were so great and they had such great things to teach, why didn't they perpetuate it in their families? I'm not denying that they contributed great books and ideas. Look at Avram Avinu, by contrast, Abraham. What is the greatest compliment given to him when God says, Here's a man who dedicated his life to perpetuate it through his family and his children. And that's why we're here today. Because he could have been very consumed. Avram was a great philosopher and a great thinker. And he could have also said, I don't have time to diaper children. I don't have time for a nagging wife. I don't have time for these mundane matters. I'm sitting, I'm God's gift to the earth. I'm here bringing the great philosophy of monotheism to the world. No, but his greatness was that he transcended his own greatness and recognized that if this is true, you commit to it and you pass it on to your children and to your grandchildren. And that's why it's so integral in Judaism. There's no such thing as a holiday without the idea of passing it on. Who were the guarantors of the Torah? Children. At a Seder table, at Purim, at Hanukkah. Because we understand there's no, there's no eternity without the next generation. I'm pointing out just an example of humility versus Aristotle. So Aristotle may have been a great man. I never met him. May have been humble as well. But that idea, like why did he not see the need to take the philosophy and turn it into a family, into a community, into a... Because they, that, they're lacking that element. And all greatness comes from that perpetuation. You only see greatness that way in generations later. Yeah, I've never heard it said that way. And I just want to articulate to see if I, if I totally understood. The Western approach to quote-unquote greatness is how great am I, how great is my accomplishment, at which point all of the things that detract you from that, family and, and everything else, um, maybe even your bad mitos are, you just kind of push them out of the way and you don't focus on that. The Jewish approach is going to be that my essential value as a person is how well I treat my family and everybody else. And that's, if I overlook that, I fundamentally don't have a quote, Jewish mission to accomplish because I wasn't successful automatically. Yes, you articulated perfectly correctly. It's like, you know, very well said. When you're looking at all of the work and the books you've done and the, and the Meaningful Life Center, what do you feel like is your next challenge or the next project that you want to take on? That's the most challenging question yet. <laughs> um, 
I'll be I'll be very honest with you. I feel uh, somewhat frustrated in a way because I feel that 3,300 years ago, 3,300 and some years ago at Mount Sinai, we were given a mandate that has the blueprint to change the world. Really believe that. It's infiltrated all of society today. I mean, Christianity and Islam are outgrowths of that. And there's no question that the humanitarianism and the social justice and the human rights that exist today are straight from the Torah. So really, I made it like a very ambitious goal to reclaim, or I say reintroduce Sinai to the world, so to speak. Here are the principles that really make this world a harmonious place. Everyone's seeking world peace, the elimination of famine and disease. We have a vision for that. We call it the messianic vision. And it's not that crazy. It's basically a world that coexists and is focused not on materialism as an end in itself, but in the words of Maimonides, Rambam, as a means toward higher growth, spiritual growth. And the words of Isaiah, the beautiful words, a world that will be no more destruction and evil because the world, is the world will be filled with divine knowledge as the waters cover the sea. So that really is my, I'm working on trying to do something on that broad scale that can really affect the critical mass. I've worked with a lot of people, but I think a critical mass is what I would like to achieve in my lifetime, to be able to serve as a bridge to actually translate that formula to people everywhere because I've seen it work and it's not creating something new. It's really taking the best original ideas that have been here from the beginning of time, but translating it to 21st century language. It's people, I'll just give you one small example. There's this Me Too movement now, right? And if you remember Mike Pence, the vice president, six months ago, before the Weinstein scandal, he said that he doesn't sit with another woman privately in a, in a room alone. <laughs> Everyone dismissed him as, as primitive and uh, prudish and what, you know, what is this, some type of old religious ideas. After the Weinstein scandal, all that's broken, people say, brilliant. And I can tell you, secular people come to me, they say, what is this thing called the laws, what we call yichud? And they start thinking about, you know what, it's quite brilliant to have true borders and boundaries that you don't even get into situations that are compromising. So there are brilliant ideas that, that if you present them right, actually create a healthier society. And I'm not talking about making everybody religious or making everybody, uh, you know, the point is to make everyone healthy. That's how I look at it. A healthier human being. The whole conversation of Me Too to me comes down to, so what is sexuality? And what is sacred relationships? And if it's consensual, then suddenly it's great. You know, it's only, God forbid, rape or unconsensual. And unconsensual is a problem. I mean, I'm just using that as an example. I think that you go through all of society, whether it's love and marriage, dealing with pain, dealing with family, children, what we see in the media is all influenced by, by values that I think you, know, you put it in the way you asked me earlier, to give them the template and give people tools. And I'm talking about not preaching and not, uh, not even educating, which just make you aware of another alternative for yourself and your family. That's what I try to create a movement that will take hold and in a very broad scale. That's, that's amazing. So, so you, you, you sort of tagged the second question that I was going to ask is, you know, what do you feel like is the biggest challenge or opportunity that's facing, I would say, the Jewish people today? And could be that this is the challenge. And I don't know, is the opportunity, to, you know, just the, the ability to reach more people through social media? Or how do you feel like we're, as a society in our generation, like right now, what we're working on, what's our biggest, I guess you could say, hurdle? And how do we overcome that? Yeah, I don't think the hurdle is using technology, you have to, like they used to say with the computers, junk in, junk out. Yeah. I think you need to have a product that is sellable 
and that is uh, con- that people will respond to. You can put, let's say for argument's sake, you get attention of five billion people on earth, seven, six billion, seven. What are you telling them? Yeah. You don't have what to say to them, so what? So you've used technology. I think the technology offers us tremendous platforms and reach, but what are you reaching with? I really think it comes down to distilling ideas and distilling uh, messages that people can digest. In the, in the world where we have very low attention spans, short, but people can get their attention and say, you know what, that's interesting. That's a way, that's, you, know, you have to get people basically different entry, uh, what do you call um, different, uh, diff- different points? points. Yeah, different entrance points based on their needs. Some people, let's say, are struggling with issues in the areas of mar- marriage, some with children, some with their own internal uh, demons, some with drugs and alcohol and other addictions. You have to speak to people where they are and show them there's an alternative. I think, I think it's really cre- giving the formula, the algorithms, and then, then you can replicate it. Because if it doesn't work with one person, it's not going to work with a million people. So I think that's a challenge, to, to, to have people who can, who can create that type of content that's easily digestible, and then you distribute it widely. Now, there are bits and pieces of it. Right? People are doing good things, but I don't think it's a, yet in the level where I would call a, a movement. But it's absolutely doable. The, cha- the challenge, I think, is not interesting. Another thing is not the challenge is not that people are, are, are um, and, uh, what I want, um, resistant. I think that people are ignorant. It's not, resi- it's not an act of resistance. There's a lot of stereotypes that need to be eliminated around religion and faith in God, for sure. But there's an ignorance of what really, like the, one of my favorite stories is when Levi told the self-proclaimed atheist, the God you don't believe in, I also don't believe in. Where, you know, where you say, realize, you know what, the things I think my beliefs, my preconceived notions are not accurate. So dispelling that, I think, is a, is a tremendous, uh, is, is you're getting more than halfway to your destination. So it's not, it's not the conveying of the message, it's getting rid of the, the distorted views that people have. I'm, I'm so fired up. I, this is great. Rabbi, please tell uh, the listeners how they can follow, find you, what they should read from you, and how they be more involved with what you're doing. Okay, my friends, see me as a resource, as a friend, as an ally in this journey, this collective journey. I have a website called MeaningfulLife.com, which really provides a lot of the resources that I've been talking about here and things we continue to grow. You can subscribe there, MeaningfulLife.com. You can submit questions. I have a Sunday night program called My Life, where people submit written questions and I address real life issues. Nothing's taboo. And uh, again, MeaningfulLife.com, and you can see everything there pretty easily on the website. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, We have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.